Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is producer, mixer, and senior advisor to Waves, Yod Nevo. First of all, I don't know if you heard or read about it. This was a big deal for about a day last week. CD Baby and TuneCore, both of them in separate deals, made a deal with Tencent Music in China. Now, this was touted as a big deal. I don't know if it's as big as everyone thinks, but Tencent Music is huge. It already owns 84% of the Chinese market. That's the equivalent of 652 million active mobile users every month, which dwarfs everybody else. So the whole idea here is if you're a member of either TuneCore or CD Baby, your music will automatically be available in China. Now, this is a free service if you're a CD Baby member, but TuneCore is charging a one-time fee of $1.98, which seems like a no-brainer. All that being said, it seems pretty good that you can have your music available in China. But do they really want it? The reason why I say that is... China already doesn't really listen to big American hits. And if they do, it's only the top five or ten. That's it. So if they don't want the big hits, why would they want songs that they don't know about? This is another big deal from the standpoint that Tencent is currently in talks to sell 10% of itself to Universal Music Group. From the outside, that may seem pretty good. You may think, well... Does that mean I'm also a universal artist? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. Does it mean that Universal might have greater insight into what you're doing? Well, perhaps. You should also know that Tencent is under investigation by the Chinese government because of exclusive deals that it does with the major record labels. So that whole thing is not all that smooth to begin with. Bottom line, some in the industry are touting this as huge for American artists. I don't think it will be, except for one thing. It's another talking point, it's another sales benefit that both CD Baby and TuneCore can offer to its clients. Again, on the surface, it seems like a big deal. Not so sure in the long run that's really going to mean anything to you. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, here's something that I think is worth mentioning, and that's digital patch bays. So if you're in a studio that needs a patch bay or already has a patch bay, you probably don't know of the pain that you can go through putting one in. If you're looking to do it in your studio and you've researched it a little bit, you're probably shocked at what it would cost. Yes, the average Switchcraft patch bay is only about $500. That being said, you can spend another $2,000 to wire it up easily, and then another $1,000 just for the cable that goes between the patch bay and all your outboard gear. 
And then there's the unseen costs of patch cables. At 15 to about $30 a piece, you need different sizes, you need adapters. So that winds up maybe being another $1,000 right there. That's a lot of money out of your pocket for a patch bay. Now, no big deal if you're going to use it every day. If you're tracking a lot, you probably need it. If you're mixing, well, you're not really accessing your outboard gear, so it doesn't matter. But again, if you're in a tracking situation where you're using a lot of mic inputs, then yeah, you probably need it. But again, expensive. Then there's also the problem that we've all had with analog patch bays from day number one, and that they get dirty. They corrode a little bit. So all of a sudden you get all these nasty pops and crackles and things that are happening, noises that come out of nowhere, usually at the worst possible time in the middle of tracking. And of course, all you have to do is pull the patch cable out, put it back in two or three times, and that gets rid of the dirt and you're okay, maybe. Again, major hassle, major headache. Now, the latest versions of patch bays are actually a little bit easier to wire up. Instead of doing point-to-point wiring on each one of those jacks, which, oh God, if you've ever done it, you know how tedious a job it is wiring that up. Most of them have now gone to DB25s. So again, that's a multi-connector and it makes it easy to actually lash everything up in the back of the patch bay, but you still have to wire those things just as tedious just as much of a problem. So you'll probably wind up actually buying them. That's more money that you have to spend or finding somebody that's really good at doing them, which isn't easy. So there must be a better way. Yeah, if you're in the digital domain, there's been a way for a long time. Z Systems kind of owned the digital patch bay market that you would see in every single mastering studio since there was so much going on that was digital, digital to digital. And that's what they really excelled at. Along came the Euphonic System 5, if you're lucky enough to work on one like I was for a while, and that had a digital to analog patch bay, so it was basically an analog patch bay that was digitally controlled. You never had to use patch cables, and that was an early version. Now we have some fairly easily accessible new digitally controlled analog patch bays. There's one from Flock Audio. It's called the Patch System. It's about $2,800. There's one from CB Electronics that I just saw recently. It's called the X-Patch 32. It's available for about $2,500. Now, that may seem like a lot of money, and you're thinking, well, maybe I'm not really saving that much more from an analog patch bay. Well, think about this, though. There's no patch cables, so you're saving yourself all of that money. Second of all, because there's no patch cables, you don't have to worry about jacks getting dirty. All that noise, it comes at the worst possible moment. The new patch bays also have built-in inputs on the front. So it makes it kind of easy if you want to do some external ins and outs on a rental piece of gear, for instance. Or you want to plug a guitar into a piece or a keyboard. I think the biggest thing is you can store and recall routings. And that's what we really want. So you put it together the first time and you click on a preset and it's back, all of your routings. If you're in a studio where there are multiple people working it, this is invaluable. But even if you own the studio, it's still invaluable because you may have different setups for different types of sessions. And this takes care of everything for you. You can store and recall all of your routing. 
Usually these are expandable too, very easily. So most of the new ones are 32 by 32, 32 ins, 32 outs. If that's not enough, you can expand it usually four or five times beyond that. You don't have to worry about labeling. And anybody who's ever put together a patch bay knows how important and what a pain labeling is. So in other words, you put this beautiful patch bay together and then you realize you don't know where anything is at. So you have to go and you have to label everything. And there are ways that you can do it and there are ways you can print out things. But again, it's another few hours out of your life <laughs> that you will never get back. So the good thing about digital patch bays is the fact you don't have to worry about labeling anymore. A thing that I really like as well is you get advanced molting options. And that's one of the things about patch bays is that there are probably certain situations where you want one device to patch into several other devices. And usually it's two, but it could be more. And that's the beauty of digital patch bays. Now you can have all these advanced routing situations all memorized and easy to handle. So this is something that's worth checking out. You still need the DB25s because that's how you interface all the analog gear. So there's still that. DB25 on one end going out to the XLRs and quarter inch cables on the other end. Still have to pay for that. Still have to get at least the DB25 ends wired or and the XLRs. But that being said, digital patch bays are the way to go. There's only a few on the market now, but I bet we're going to be seeing more and more come on the market soon, and the price is going to be even cheaper. My guest today is Yod Nevo, whose credits include over 30 number one singles, more than 50 top 10 albums, and over 60 top 10 singles worldwide as a producer, mixer, and mastering engineer. Among the artists he's worked with include Sia, Brian Adams, Pet Shop Boys, Sugar Babies, The Dandy Warhols, Moby, Morchiba, and many more. Yoda has also been inventing and developing plugins for Waves since 1997, and has registered patents, his book Hit Record and Inside Track to Music Production, and his popular webinars have paved the way for other producers and engineers. During the interview, we spoke about the magic number of mixes before you learn how to do it, getting into mastering, developing plugins for Waves, and much more. I spoke with Yod via Skype from a studio in London. Let's start from the beginning. How did you get started in the business? Okay, so um, when, I was, uh, when I was 10, I started playing guitar. <clears throat> and when I was 11, my dad got me an electric guitar, but no amp. So um, I started, I had one, <clears throat> one jack lead, and I cut one end of it, and I exposed the, the wires. And I, and I plugged the, the other end to the guitar and I started looking to places where I can plug the guitar in here and get sound out of it. And I got like, you know, I got electrocuted. I blew up the TV, um, loads of, you know, incidents like that. And so basically it, it was always hand in hand together, like the engineering with the musicianship or the it started with guitar later on it developed to keyboards and synths and stuff like that but um, I used to build stuff I took the lamp off and and made a talk box out of it and things like that and and then I, when I was uh, 16 17 I I, st uh, I went to this uh, engineering course it was like for one year, it was twice a week in the afternoon. It wasn't anything um, too serious, but 
that was the, the the manager of a very famous studio, the biggest studio in, in Tel Aviv, asked for a runner, basically. So he asked the, uh, the, the guy who was running the course and he recommended uh, me for that job. And that's how I started working in the studio when I was uh, 17 or something like that. And uh, I'm here ever since. Well, then you moved to London. Yeah, uh, in 98, I moved to London. You worked in some great studios there. I did. Unfortunately, many of them don't exist anymore, yeah. which is very, very sad. The upside of it is that I was kind of almost forced to to build my own studio. Uh, I don't know if you can see yeah. much of it now, my synths and, you know, so, yeah. Um, so I'm quite uh, content here. So you were working with a lot of really great producers and engineers, and, and I guess you learned a lot. Who, who did you feel that you learned the most from? Wow. It's hard to say. I think that, I think that the, the, the engineer who influenced me the most, because I was only assisting for not, not a very long while after a year in, in that studio, that I worked in um, when I started, um, I got very lucky and I got to to engineer. It was like in the stories, you know, the engineer got a phone call and uh, had to leave. And the producer asked me, uh, well, do you think you can take over? And I was, yeah, no problem. And I was like, shitting myself. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know if I can use this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> And um, and basically, I ended up engineering the whole album and uh, co-producing it when I was like 18 or something like that. And after that, I started, I was very cocky and I said, well, I don't want to assist anymore. And I left the studio and I became a freelance and that. But during the time that I did assist, there was an engineer who I learned a lot from. And he told me, he, he said, you don't know what, what a mix is until you mixed 200 songs or 200 mixes. And, and I remember at the time I said, wow, how long will it take me, you know, before I can reach that, that crazy number? And looking back, I don't know how many thousands of mixes, you know, I've done. But at that time, so that kind of influenced me. But his, his technique, he was very methodical and very... Yeah, methodical and really building it from the ground up and, and uh, putting a lot of uh, attention to details. And, I, and I'm like that as well. Um, and some of it is because some of that is because of, of him. When did you feel like you got good at mixing? Because as you say, 200 mixes, that's probably a, a good number. But there's a certain point where you go, ah, okay, I have this now. I think I know what I'm doing. Um, I don't know if I'm at this stage now, even it's something that, that keeps in evolving and you keep, yeah, there are some mixes that I, that I, that I've done that I, I can enjoy them mostly because they remind me of an era or of, uh, like the vibe in the studio or whatever. And, and uh, some of them, uh, became like really big hits. And I obviously enjoy the fact that people it influenced the you know other people as well and things like that but uh but i can find faults in 
in all of them. So, and and I think that that's why I keep asking myself: Is that all the time? Well, you know, I I produce a lot and I do a lot of songwriting and a lot of mixing. But I in in all in all, and I you know develop products for waves, which is like almost a totally different thing, but it's it's very much related. And within all that, I keep asking myself at any given moment, is this the best that this could be? Is this the best uh, mix or is this the best, the best balance that this song can have? Or is this the best vocal take that, that I can get out of the, of the singer? Or is this the best, the most convenient and easy workflow that we can get on a plugin so i think it's an important well i can't i can't help it this is how i i roll basically but i think it's quite an important thing to not get too i don't know sat satisfied with and and settle on on mediocrity but but to to try to thrive to to excellence it's funny you should talk about that Ken Scott, the great engineer producer, of course you know who he is, he told me that after he did the Super Tramp album, he thought he got it as good as possible, that he could never top what he did. And he said it screwed him up for a couple of years, feeling that I already did it, so I can't do it any better. And it took him a while to get out of that mindset. Well, in his case, he's probably right, because it's this, this album is genius, you know, in every aspect of it and the sound is obviously a, a big uh, contributor to that but no no I, I never felt content i always try to to better myself i want to get to waves in a second but i know you work as a producer and a songwriter and an engineer and, and now you're doing mastering as well or you've been doing mastering for a while out of all those what do you prefer what's the most fun the most fun is to be able to work on different things in any given day or week maybe so one day i'll be mixing one and even it's not it's not a whole day it's not so it's not like it used to be when you get like a day and a half or two days to do a mix and then you you go home and listen to it and come back and do a few tweaks and and that's it and then it's gone and unless you have to do recalls which is a nightmare and all that so these days i work like 90% of the mix is done in the box and then if required then i would run it through the through the desk just for summing so i can always and i line up the desk so it's very easily recallable it's not even recall you just load the session so and that and that means that i can um, do a mix i can work on it for for 2 hours or something and then maybe move to something else come back to it if it's ready to print then i'll print it and then i'll go home listen to it in the car on the headphones you know sometimes sometimes i spend more time with the song on the phone than in the studio because i you know with the technology and all the plugins and all that it takes plus i have my assistants who prepare the mix for me to death basically so i don't have any technical issues like breaths and stuff and edits and so it's all ready and it's all colored and, and all positioned 
how I like it and all that. So that saves a lot of time. So I, so I, then I work very quickly and if I can print something, then I would listen to it many times during the next day or two or even three and, and make kind of mental notes to what I need to do. And then when I, when I load it up again, it will take me five minutes to, to actually perform those tweaks, you know, because it's, it's so easy. And, and while I'm doing that, I would probably master a track or two. And if I have a writing session, then it, it will take a day. But uh, otherwise, it's kind of, you know, I do a little bit. And, and this, is, this is what I like about it. Because, um, you know, I once mixed a song for two weeks, one song, every day, like 14 hours a day. I don't miss that. <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, some of it was my fault, but not all of it and I, I yeah i don't i don't miss it no yeah i'm with you there that's for sure you mentioned mastering let's talk about that for a while because making the transition mentally into mastering many engineers can't do that or don't want to do it so why did you decide to do that well i've, I've done it at a very early at the very early stage um i started mastering back in mid 90s after I wasn't happy with the results that I was getting back from, from, from mastering. And it was around quite soon after I joined Waves. I joined Waves in 97. I don't remember when we, we started working on the mastering bundle, but I got, you know, I was, I was mastering on my own on, on like in analog, uh, on analog gear. But then we started developing, uh, this mastering bundle and I dived really deep into this whole concept and creating mastering tools that a lot of engineers, you know, still use. So it, it kind of evolved together basically. So I, I know that the difference between mastering and mixing and i'm not trying i mean i think the, the main import the, the most important thing is and maybe that's what's difficult for for mix engineers in mastering you don't change stuff you you just touch it ever you you almost like hover it's like you know a bee hovering above a flower and not even touching it you know you just sprinkle it ever so so gently so um and I said once that that my whole experience, all my years of experience, basically materialize into 0.4 dB at 10K or something like that, you know? Yeah. So it's very, very little. And, and I think that a lot of mixing engineers are used to turn no, turning knobs, you know? And, yeah. it, and it's not about that. It's not about that. Well, I think the other problem, too, is if you're mastering on the same speakers that you mixed on, you might be missing a problem that you're only compounding if you're, for instance, if there's a dip at 2K and you're not aware of that, you may be making it worse at 2K if you're mastering on those same speakers. True, but, uh, and that that brings us back to the to the studio, you know, being a freelance and working in many studios and all that, I think that... I, I had my my own proper studio. I always used to have like production rooms and writing rooms and things like that. But I had a proper studio for the past fifteen years or something like that, and and I know it well. And it, and sound is 
I know what I'm hearing. So in effect, it only contributes to the fact that the, the more time I spend in this room, I mean, not this one specifically, because this one I just finished building a few months ago. It took me over a year to build, and but I kept the same proportions as the room I had before for 13 years. So, you know, so I and I, I, I love, I have the ATCs uh, and I love them. And I have my Proax, which I, which I love as well. And I just know it. I just know exactly what's going on. And so, so when I master for other people, it's very easy for me. And when I master my own mixes, I don't really master them in a way. Because if I need to do something, I'll go back to the mix and change it. So I don't use EQ or anything like that in the mastering. It's just a level thing and make sure that making sure that you have the, the right kind of uh, loudness units and, and all that. And these days, in the past two, three years where the loudness war is kind of over effectively because of all the, the streaming standards of Spotify and, uh, and Apple and YouTube, it's a lot easier because you don't have to, to crank it so, so hard. You know, one of the things that I think a lot of mixing engineers who are mastering on material don't understand is for mastering, it's level between songs as well. It's making all the songs, if you're, you're working on an album, which is less and less these days, but it's trying to make them all sound somewhat the same, like they belong together. And that's more important than tonal quality or levels or whatever. It's, it's that relationship. But that seems to not be sink in for some reason yeah but even that with you know i mastered i don't know thousands and thousands of of songs and hundreds of of albums and you just go to the you play the last chorus on each song and if they match and then the the sometimes the artist or the producer will say yeah but the intro of this song is too quiet you know, coming after the the, the the song before, which ends up really loud and blah, blah, blah. And then you say, yeah, but listen to the vocal at the peak of each song. Yeah. And, you know, and so it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's techniques, which, uh, which are, which you just learn and improve yourself through, through time. Sure. Let's talk about waves. How did you get involved then with waves? Did you get involved with them right from the beginning? Almost. Basically, I was. Um, it was right around the time that I started mastering myself, <clears throat> and I heard about Gilad, who is one of the founders, who who used to be an engineer. So I used to know him from the studio that we were both freelancing in, and he told me about his this prototype that they built. That was actually before Waves. It wasn't, basically they had, a, it was a hardware thing. It was a computer. It was like a 386 uh, computer with a touch screen, which was basically a piece of rubber or something that was kind of glued to the screen and you could touch it. It was very low resolution. And it had a six band EQ, a six band compressor and the limiter and they were and it was like it, it was running i know it now i didn't know it then but it was running on motorola so it was basically the tdm technology and these were the predecessors of the the q10 or the q6 in this case and and the l1 
and the C1. So I took this, uh, this box to the studio I was working in and I was running stuff. It had the um, SPD, so I was running stuff from, from that, one that to another and, and using the, the processing. And then there was, a, there was a thunderstorm and the whole block or something, the, the power went off, went down. And when it came back on, this device <laughs> never got back to life. Oh. So basically, <laughs> it, it got fried. And I called Gilad, it was like, well, it was midnight and he came and Mayor came, Mary is the other founder. And it was like raining and there were, and so basically I destroyed, there the, the were like one and a half units. There was this unit and then there was another unit which never really worked. And now they had none, basically. And after that, they offered me a job, basically. <laughs> So then the idea was, okay, let's not use hardware anymore. Let's just do the software part of it because we don't have to worry about getting it fried. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so what were the first plugins that you worked on then? It was the Renaissance EQ and the L2. Yeah, that was a while ago. And then we did the, yeah, then there was a lot of other stuff. Um, I was very proud of the what's it called the uh, the multi tap the multi tap the super tap delay, which um, because I'm sure you remember that, but up to that, all this all the multi tap delays were like in numbers and stuff, and you had to and I wanted to do it like like a timeline thing, so it's so that the taps are like regions in Cubase. So you can just move them, and they and they, they you can quantize them to grid or or make them slip, and you know. Yeah. So that was one of. Uh, so I was very proud of that. I think that I also, I'm also responsible to meters being kind of uh, orange rather than kind of green. Everything used to be used to have green meters, and I and I said. On the DSer, I think it was the, the DSer that we did soon after I arrived, because I used to work on this Harrison desk, which had um, plasma meters. And I said, why don't we do, why don't we make it like that? I mean, we couldn't quite make it look like uh, like plasma these day, uh, those days, but yeah, they were all uh, orange. And after that, Protus adopted that and, uh, and uh, a lot of... Um, yeah, so there was a, quite a few kind of landmarks that uh, that I was very proud of in the beginning, uh, but after that there were so many products that I was involved with. Are you involved with everyone? With all the products, yeah. Uh, some of them I initiated. Some of them I was involved in on lesser capacity, but I am involved with with all the products that we we make. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the Abbey Road Studio 3 plugin, which I think is brilliant. It's, it's phenomenal. Thanks. I hope that everybody gets a chance to listen to it because it will change their listening experience in headphones for sure. So tell me how that came about. Basically, we started developing the NX technology, I think probably five years ago or something like that, or even, even, even before then. 
it's based on uh, basically on a theoretical um, assumption that we can mimic the way you listen to speakers and we can bring that experience into into headphones on the original nx we used algorithmic early reflections if you like uh, which are based on the the, the, the physical you know structure of the ear and the distance between the speakers and the fact that you have spill from one speaker to from the left speaker to your right ear but it's filtered by it's filtered by your skull and it's it you know the sound arrives later to this ear than to to this ear and and all the those uh, and we created a, a basically an algorithmical model of all those components and that's that's an x an x plus the the head movement the the head tracker which which allows you to so when you when you listen to normal speakers when you move your head you will hear the sound coming more from here and and more filtered and delayed from this ear and and this contributes immensely to the to the sense of realism for when you for when you listen when you listen to headphones so because when you listen to headphones and especially when you mix on headphones if you pan your hi-hat or something hard left then you will hear it only in your left ear and that doesn't happen in, in on speakers so your your panorama range on speakers is like that it's more like 45 degrees because that's the triangle that you know that's the kind of angle that you sit in front of the speakers and in headphones it just doesn't work like that um, so while we were developing the nx i tried to mix because i've never mixed on headphones i never had to you know and i don't know if you if you if you tried it but it's it's weird because uh you get the sound you get the sound right but the balance is all over the place yeah because if you know the headphones and you can get the vocal sounding okay but then it will be too loud or too quiet or and the the the, the kind of spread of the of the instruments would be weird and therefore their balance and the kind of focus and all that and and with nx it it lets you it lets you basically ideally what we wanted to achieve is for someone to forget that they're wearing headphones and and that's where the head tracker helps a lot because because our brain interprets the uh, visual cues as well as sonic cues from our environment so if you sit in front of, of a pair of speakers your head you know because of your pulse because of your of of your breathing it, it moves ever so slightly but all the time and when you wear the head tracker or when you use the, the webcam which has a little bit more latency so that therefore the head tracker is much more it, helpful in that sense and even unintentionally you look there and you look or you just move your your head ever so slightly but the sound kind of moves with you and that allows you to to get immersed in the sound and not be so aware that you that it's it's almost like the difference between di and an amp on a guitar you know when when you when you plug a, a guitar to a di you hear all the kind of strings and this and you're very much aware 
of the mechanics of the instrument. But when it's going through an amp, it gets smoothened and and it's more pleasant. And it's I don't know if it's a good analogy, but something like this happens with an X. So then the natural extension would be to model a room like Abbey Road Studio Three. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The the technology is a little bit different because it's based on impulse responses measured, uh, recorded in that specific room rather than algorithmic uh, modeling. But all the other elements are present in, in, that, um, in that product. It, it's, yeah, it's very realistic. It's, um, it's very realistic. And also you get surround on the mid speakers, you get uh, uh, 7.1 and 5.1 surround sound. And this is something I think is huge, and I don't think it's been pronounced enough in 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 marketing and communication. Because what NX allows you is to basically sit on a train and watch a film on your laptop in surround, hmm. and, and and it's quite mind blowing because because um, if you think about it, your ears you only have two ears. So we have two holes, one here and one here, yet we do get surround sound. Right. And if you mimic all the parameters or, you know, we try, obviously we we don't get uh, the same kind of level of detail and all that. But if you mimic some of the parameters, then you will hear surround sound on headphones, on stereo headphones, normal headphones, which is I think it's a big deal. Yeah, it is, especially since immersive audio is becoming a big deal, you know, and that's across all different formats, especially music now. I was just over at Capitol Studio C where they have an immersive room, an Atmos room. It was a great experience. It just sounded terrific. But again, you can't always be in a situation like that, so it's nice if you could translate it to your headphones. Exactly, because I think that one of the reasons why surround sound did never really, you know, it, n- it never caught on. It never, you don't have many surround systems in at homes yeah. because you, you have to, to have, uh, I don't know, the power socket behind your sofa and wires and things. But with headphones, it just... Uh, it just works, and everyone has a pair of headphones. Yeah, yeah. Okay, last question. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way? Wow. Well, maybe that that I shouldn't deal with business, but just with sound. <laughs> As Clint Eastwood said, a man's got to know his limitations. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, and, I, and I'm quite happy. And like I said, a lot of a lot of artists and and managers, you know, ask me, "Well, can you send this track today? So can you do and can you help us with marketing?" And I say, my job ends here with the master fader. Anything that happens after that, it's it's not my you know, it's not my thing. And I'm quite happy that uh, that I managed to to maintain that kind of uh, concept. You can find out more about Yod at yodnevo.com. That's Y-O-A-D-N-E-V-O, all one word, dot com. 
Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, and Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.